0: from India's largest newsroom I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast
1: in the past you've called smartphones a spy in your pocket do you think this confirms that i think it's actually worse uh, when i said there's a spy in your pocket uh, it's the potential it's the capability it's the fact that you know um these things are, are talking to the mobile phone network and tracking your locations. You've got, you know, Facebook spying on you. Uh, but these are largely commercial programs for commercial purposes. What we see now are people uh, creating an industry to hate those phones and go beyond the level of spying that already previously we knew existed. And now they're actually taking control of that phone fully and turning it against the people who bought and paid for it, but no longer truly own it. And the thing is, these phones are clones. When we're talking about something like an iPhone, uh, they're all running the same software uh, around the world. So if they find a way to hack one iPhone, they've found a way to hack all of them. And they are doing that, and they are selling that
0: That's whistleblower Edward Snowden talking to a journalist at the Guardian newspaper in the UK about the latest revelations of widespread snooping and the misuse of the Pegasus surveillance software sold by an Israeli company called NSO to certain governments who are their clients. The data leak is a list of more than fifty thousand phone numbers that have been surveilled by various governments between 2017 and 2019. The data also contains the time and date that numbers were selected or entered onto a system. For instance, it is now revealed that in 2017, the phones of the close aides of the then Karnataka Chief Minister Ramaya were allegedly hacked and infected using Pegasus. Remember, this was the time that the Congress government was toppled by the BJP as part of its Operation Kamalam. A former election commissioner, opposition leaders and their families and friends, a couple of leaders from the present dispensation and several journalists have now been identified as those whose phones were hacked and in the coming days, more names are likely to be made public. While the government has neither confirmed nor denied buying the Pegasus software from NSO, the new IT minister Ashwini Vaishnav told Parliament that there was no substance in the allegations of widespread surveillance. Ironically, Ashwini Vaishnav is one of the two BJP ministers who have been identified among the list of people whose phones were allegedly hacked using Pegasus.
2: A highly sensational story was published by a web portal yesterday night. Many over-the-top allegations have been made around this story. Honorable Speaker, sir, the press reports have appeared a day before the monsoon session of the parliament. This cannot be a coincidence, Honorable Speaker, sir. In the past, Similar claims were made regarding the use of Pegasus on WhatsApp. Those reports had no factual basis and were categorically denied by all parties, including in the Supreme Court. The press reports of 18 July 2021 also appear to be an attempt to malign the Indian democracy and its well-established institutions. We cannot fault those who haven't read the news story in detail.
0: And I... But how exactly does Pegasus work? And how does a hacking tool endanger the essence of Indian democracy? I asked Nikhil Pahwa to explain. He's a journalist, digital rights activist, and founder of MediaNama, and writes frequently on censorship and the internet, and also about mobile regulation in India.
3: So uh, Pegasus is a software created by the NSO Group, an Israeli company, which is used for surveillance and spying. Now, the NSO group sells it, saying that it's selling it primarily to track terrorists. But there have been allegations and there have been instances reported in the past that this software has been used to surveil human rights activists, to surveil journalists, also politicians. So in this latest episode, which is the 2021 version, the last one was in 2019, um, of this exposure slash disclosure, we found that over fifty thousand people across the globe have been surveyed, three hundred of them in India. Now, how this works is essentially that Pegasus is a software that can be implanted in your device, and you don't need to click on a link to implant it. Always, right? In the in two thousand and nineteen, when the first exposes came out, it was that someone had been given a missed call on WhatsApp, and so Pegasus essentially exploited a technical vulnerability in WhatsApp so that it could be installed on your device. Now, WhatsApp is end-to-end encrypted. That means that if I send you a message, no one can intercept it in transit because it goes over the internet. But on your device, your, okay. your content is not private. It's not encrypted because apps need to be able to read it. So when such an app gets installed in your device, it's invisible to you. You can't see it. It's so sophisticated, antivirus software can't track it. It starts logging your activities. It can take screenshots. It can turn on your microphone and record your conversations. It has your GPS information without you being able to see that it is doing all of these things. It basically relies on things being open on your device to be able to snoop on everything that you're doing. And what's even more worrying is that it has write permissions on your device, which means, that it can potentially be used to deliver other content. So if someone wanted, if a government wanted to accuse you of terrorism, it could implant evidence on your device. And how would you prove that it's not yours? The one thing which is very important to remember is that the NSO group by design sells this software only to governments. It is a part of a convention where this is sold only to governments. If it has been used in India, as is the allegation right now, then a government has used it. Um, and just looking at how our government has responded, both in 2019 when our IT minister Ravi Shankar Prasad spoke about it, and how Ashwini Vaishnav spoke about it yesterday, it seems that uh, they're not. they're saying that there has been no unauthorized surveillance. They haven't denied it so far. They have never explicitly said that they haven't used the Pegasus software. That means that there is room for authorized surveillance. It's extremely difficult. And one of the most challenging aspects of digital surveillance is attribution. How do you prove, in this case, who has ordered the surveillance or who is surveilling? Because the endpoints are not known. Many times it goes from server to server to server to server across the globe. And so it just becomes almost impossible to find out how this is happening.
0: The name NSO of the company that created Pegasus stands for the initials of its three founders. But how exactly does this Israeli company, which charges rupees 70 lakh for a single license of its Pegasus software, operate in the shadow world of espionage and government contracts? Ramonjit Singh Chima explains. Chima serves as the Asia Policy Director and Senior International Counsel at AccessNow, which serves to protect open internet. And, and what do we know about NSO? Is it a private firm? Is, does it have the backing of the Israeli government? So the reason I ask is that are we dealing with a, with a private not, uh, unaccountable company or are there some diplomatic uh, sort of quid pro quo here?
4: So I think it's very important to understand that NSO is a private firm, but is actually a, a fairly uh, regulated private firm in some ways. And what I mean by that is they're a surveillance tech developer. The technology they uh, they use and leverage, including Pegasus, is actually what's called a dual-use technology. That means it has both civilian and military applications and under international arrangements such as the Wassenaar arrangement that governs uh, cryptographic tools and other tools that can have military applications but also domestic legal frameworks, including in Israel, for the export of military-grade software and equipment, it actually requires the permission of the Israeli government for NSO to export their services. And they have a license issued by the Israeli Ministry of Defense that regulates their their uh, sale and their uh, you know export of these tools and services globally. NSO is also a firm that with significant investment from private uh, venture capital entities in Europe, particularly the United Kingdom, as well as from North America. So it's a private firm with a lot of capital from these countries and has been, in fact, criticized now for nearly five to six years around its reckless approach to dealing with clients all across the world, its double speak on its human rights standards, its lack of accountability. And ultimately, though, since it's a private firm regulated by the Israeli government, whatever they do with the Indian government would at least partly be notified or reported to Israeli authorities. The challenge there is that the Israeli Ministry of Defense has been very difficult and practically protective of NSO um, and you don't know what they're doing. And in fact, when, for example, Amnesty and others sued NSO in Israeli courts, the Israeli Ministry of Defense got the lawsuit chucked out after a secret hearing.
0: How do we as citizens, the civil society, how do people uh, seek accountability? Are there any mechanisms within our existing structure?
4: Under the legal framework that already exists in India, what... NSO would have done would have been an act of hacking. That is a criminal offense in India, which by the way, there's no exception for government. There is no, you know, a clause that says government can do it. Private parties can't. But mm-hmm. also more importantly, there's no shield for a private party that might have done this for government. That means if they did this for any government agency, they can't turn back and say, Oh, don't proceed against us criminally because we service government. They actually can be prosecuted.
0: So even the government is not exempt from criminal charges when it comes to hacking, is that what you're
4: saying? Yes. A, the government itself is accountable for criminal charges of hacking, and B, any third party they use would also not be able to use the defense of saying, oh, we are working for government. They could try, but that's not there directly in the law. But of course, remember in India, to prosecute government, you need sanction for prosecution. And that's where we run into a problem where, although law and order is a state subject, any state police unit or other entity that tries to, say, prosecute another state police unit or the center, would require sanction for prosecution. And that's where, as you know, many of these things, in a sense, uh, die because bureaucrats will just make sure that sanction for prosecution is not given.
0: Uh, In the eventuality that the center has sanctioned this hacking, the center will need to give permission.
4: For itself. And absolutely, that's a sort of all perverse situation we have, which is exactly why I think a lot of people are saying, at the minimum, you need a truly independent judicial inquiry set up even if not by the government, perhaps even independently reporting to a legislative or parliamentary body, uh, you also need, in effect, a surveillance commissioner in India. You need somebody who is an independent body set up by an act of parliament that can go into these issues. And the data protection bill that is currently pending before parliament, that was in fact before a committee chaired by Ms. Manushi Lekhi, who is now a minister, so a new chairperson has to be appointed. This is the criticism of that bill: that, that bill would create a data protection commission, but that would have no powers really in the space of controlling or overseeing surveillance or giving you and me and the readers you know, of the Times uh, true remedy and accountability or independent an independent avenue to bring complaints. And that's what we need for sure urgently.
3: So the only safeguard we have right now is actually the putaswami judgment uh, that gave us the fundamental right to privacy. And that allows us to go to court to challenge surveillance in this manner. Even if we had a personal data protection bill, um, it wouldn't help because in its draft stage, in the last draft that we have seen, very clearly, the government has got an exemption from the provisions of the bill. So it is going to help stop big tech surveillance and control and give us rights over data when it comes to big tech collecting data. But it won't help us when it comes to the government collecting data, the government surveilling us or profiling us. And it will take going to court to challenge some of these things um, in order to bring about surveillance reform and data collection reform when it comes to the government.
0: I asked Nikhil Pahava, whom you just heard, whether the courts in India were hearing petitions on this.
3: On surveillance, there is a petition from the Internet Freedom Foundation. Again, I don't think it has moved forward for a while, but if there was ever a reason for it to move forward, it is now. I do think that uh, people who have been impacted by this surveillance perhaps need to also move court to assert their fundamental right to privacy and demand accountability or at least an investigation. What we need is structural reform. We need a surveillance law. We need accountability of surveillance agencies to parliament. We need... Uh, there to be a sanctioning of surveillance when it is needed based on certain objective criteria done by a judge. We need multiple steps, uh, you know, where if the surveillance has to go deeper, then there has to be a higher threat perception uh, backed by evidence. It can't just be, you know, on a luck. I mean, the fact that an election commissioner was being surveilled so close to elections is just astounding. How can that be allowed in a democracy?
0: what are the what are the uh, the larger implications for the country going forward
3: i think what we're probably going to see is the normalization of surveillance and this this heightening of this rhetoric that if you haven't done anything wrong why do you worry and that people who worry about surveillance are working against the nation or are anti nationals and that rhetoric is going to pipe up because you know the guy in, uh, on on the ground is going to look at it and say, look, I'm not going to be surveilled. It's only these powerful people who are being surveilled. And if I love my country, I love my government. And therefore, the opposition is just preventing the growth of India. That's that's the kind of rhetoric we're likely to see. We're already seeing some strands of it. But I think all of it depends on, on on how the people who have been impacted, on how they respond. Are they going to go to court on this? Are they going to petition the Supreme Court? Are parliamentarians who have been subjected to surveillance going to consistently push back and not shift focus to other issues and not get distracted by other issues it 's one of the two big internet governance problems globally of attribution and jurisdiction, so even if it 's an outside agency, we may not have the jurisdiction to act on it, and if it is internal, then it will be impossible to attribute if you notice. Even the reports that have come out are unable to conclusively attribute it to an entity. And what the government is doing it is that it's using that gap of lack of attribution to say that, you know, there is no conclusive proof. And that's the problem. It's going to be impossible to find conclusive proof unless you get access to, you know, orders for purchase and you have information of, of, of sanctions of surveillance from within the government. And that's going to be protected under national security, which is exactly why we need parliamentary oversight on surveillance.
0: Ramanjit Singh Chima goes one step further to explain that it's not just people whose phones are hacked by Pegasus whose privacy is compromised, but also that of their friends and relatives by the simple virtue of association.
4: You know, if your listeners are listening to this today, I would like ask them to look at the device they're using their computer, their mobile phone. Their tablet and what all is what all they already make available through that uh, device. The sort of emails they send, the communications they make to their to their work colleagues, to their family, to their loved ones, to people they may not like as well, and all the sort of data that's kept there. You have a device in your pocket or on your desk that has an active microphone and video camera that can be turned on via software at any point of time. Not just your information, but the information of your friends and colleagues whose you know personal details, financial information you might keep. Everything is there. You know, the, the test I often give to people is, would you give your password to your device or to your, you know, your personal email account to somebody else? And imagine mm. a software suite that can make, make that choice of giving your password be irrelevant because it can access it all anyway. Store this data, not just for now, but for years and years and be able to use it to compromise, not just yourself, but even others.
0: So if you and I are friends and if your phone is hacked, I'm equally liable to get uh, sort of exposed because you and I have been in touch.
4: Absolutely. My, for example, at the very least, the the messages and information I share with you would be accessible to that third party. Sometimes, for example, I might say, you know, Oh, you know, as you know, my, my favorite, uh, you know, food is this and my birthday is so-and-so date. Can you bring that mm. there? And maybe that's also what I use as my email password. I, I don't, don't recommend your listeners actually do that, but imagine, that will immediately allow someone to compromise your account, but also because you trust that person. A third-party attacker could actually put in a, mm-hmm. you know, a line of code or a link or not even sometimes a link, but even be able to use your device to secretly hack the other person in turn. So if one person's device is compromised, everybody they're in touch with can also be impacted and
0: affected. This is alarming beyond comprehension. But uh, in the short term, what what kind of effect do you see it taking, if any?
4: I think globally, one bit of the impact is that this will add more momentum to the global move to have a full moratorium on surveillance technology export or at least more checks on it. This has been a repeated statement brought by experts to the United Nations human rights system, including the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Speech and Expression uh, and other offices, who have said that surveillance technology is so harmful and so dangerous that there should be a global moratorium on its sale until at least more safeguards and checks are put in there. You will see perhaps more global moves on that and more recognition that this sector is actually full of reckless, lawless entities that are making our world a less safe place. I think the bigger and more challenge, the harder challenge for us is what happens in India, because I suspect there's a lot of momentum, rather a lot of efforts being driven right now to just hide behind some of the global discussions, say it might be a global problem. It's not just India and not recognize that actually India has a surveillance impunity problem. If you look at every surveillance scandal India has had over the last 15 to 20 years across different political parties, there's been very little accountability and very little change. And that's, I think, where people need to speak up to ensure that there is change. That, for example, legislation currently pending before parliament is strengthened to actually make a difference here. You see independent investigations, whether by the center or the states into this area. And we ask for that accountability because I think it's remarkable that we've had at least two major revelations about this sort of hacking activity happening in India just within three years and yes. you still have a situation where the government has not said categorically or not whether it has had any dealings with NSO.
2: Everybody while in power uh, believes that uh, the more information I have about all my political opponents and otherwise it's uh, is there. I mean, that is literally the hangover from the from the British itself. One has to be extremely careful about one says or one sends on mail it's, it's 100% it is as uh, uh, one of the us uh, people uh, told me he said you have to assume that your phone is hacked and every whatever you say on that and anybody who says that my phone has not been hacked is living in a fool's paradise
0: that's gk pillai the former bureaucrat was the home secretary when the infamous neera radya tapes India's last big snooping scandal broke out. He claimed at that time that the telephone interceptions had been authorized by the then-Home Ministry on accounts of allegations of tax evasion. Pillai has a more pragmatic view of interceptions and believes that snooping, within the ambit of prescribed regulations, is a powerful tool in the armory of any government.
2: I can give you one example which happened. One of the enforcement agencies were actually when I was union's home secretary, they were tapping somebody for what I would say as black money uh, dealings. But during the conversation, one of the conversations, he mentioned about a payment of rupees five crores being made to somebody in the home ministry uh, for something else. It was something it was basically doing something on transfers and postings that actually turned out to be. But that information comes to us. And once it comes to us, we actually put everybody under, because we didn't know who it was, who was being, we put all the you know, literally joint secretaries, including the home secretary under watch for 15 days. And we found out when the call came to a particular officer, from there, the, then they tapped it. And government does this all the time. For people in sensitive departments of the government, literally on an annual basis or sometimes on a six-monthly basis, uh, you come under surveillance uh, by certain agencies on a 20, 24 by 7 basis. That is part of government to ensure the integrity of because if you are in a sensitive post, they can't afford to have somebody who is, without the knowledge of the government, uh, in touch with some foreign agencies or being blackmailed yes. or in passing. So this is something which is done, I mean, 24 by 7, it is being done uh, across sensitive ministries like uh, Home, Defence, and so on. and so on.
0: The names that we see coming out now are very different from uh, uh, say, the usual terror suspects that Surveilled in the past. Is that something that surprises you? Number one. Number two, as somebody who has been part of the government and understands the various pressures and pulls and pushes, what is your take on surveillance by the government and what are the safeguards that should be strengthened perhaps?
2: I think the the more more important uh, aspect which I see is that there are so many. Commercial applications which are available and they are available some of them are off the shelf for surveillance and they are used by different agencies and they don't cost much sometimes. some cost in thousands some in lakhs. It's widely available for people to use for you know I mean all private detective agencies which are you know looking into matrimonial disputes etc they are you know tapping the husband or the wife's phone to see whether you know. So, this is sort of something which is all the time uh, taking place. But there, of course, that tapping is really illegal. So, that is never used as such in the courts, but it is enough to, you know, give a transcript of that to either to the husband or the wife who then takes that and then shows it and, you know, uses that as, you know, you want to say pressure or blackmail to get what she, uh, you know, to... uh, and See, you can use and, and
0: and in the same way you can perhaps use much more sophisticated technology to uh, keep a tab on, on others it's i mean going beyond matrimonial disputes or business disputes you can use it at a much larger level too
2: we know that in business business people use it to spy on their competitors to find out what uh, competitors are doing um, they eavesdrop on their board meetings to find out what somebody's Trying to take a decision for a merger, amalgamation, take anything to get some advantage on your competitor's strategy and so on. This is quite widely used.
0: Uh, as somebody who, has, uh, who understands the kind of power that governments can wield over private lives or private individuals, what kind of safeguards do you think we need?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is that you need a, a Data Privacy Act. Uh, which protects the citizens from uh, for uh, their privacy so if somebody is uh, tapping into my phone without due authorization i must get some remedy in terms of being able to take punitive action against that person and stop the thing from taking place and therefore the data privacy act is absolutely essential which must have an independent regulator
0: Snooping then on its own people, it would seem, has a tacit bipartisan consent among political parties. Ramanjit Chima cites the example of the BJP itself, which, when it was in opposition, was one of the strongest votaries of surveillance reform. But today, now that it occupies power, it plays the same game. It would seem that all political parties, bar none, have... Uh, surveilled people in the past or at the present, I mean, at the present moment. So even state governments have their own surveillance mechanism. So it's not that they would be particularly keen to bring in very strong anti-surveillance laws.
4: Absolutely, unless they push to. And you're, in effect, that's the problem in India, that surveillance is truly a bipartisan, cross-partisan issue, that when parties are not in power, they are willing to talk about the problems there. And second, the second they're in power in the center or in the states... They go quiet on this. So what you need now are commitments, including by opposition MPs or opposition parties who are now raising this in parliament, where they are in power. For example, the Congress in Rajasthan, or other opposition parties in uh, the Congress in Punjab, other opposition parties in southern states and elsewhere. You need them to walk the talk and pass their own measures at this local level, even if that may not fully regulate a federal you know, federal government agencies using software like Pegasus, they can restrict and bring more transparency on what they do domestically. And even as I said, create these independent investigative bodies. So we need to see that happen. And we need concerted pressure because we've seen this time and time again, that people say one thing when they're critiquing the ruling party, the second they're in power, they turn around. And I just will note note to you that if you were in Delhi, say 10 years ago, mm-hmm. one of the most vocal and aggressive voices for surveillance reform were actually people from the BJP, including the late Jaitley. And now today you see the same voices defending extraordinary government claims about powers to intercept and monitor anything or no checks, just a blanket statement of trust us. And I think we need to say we trust our politicians, but we want to trust and verify. We want to see them take actual steps no matter which party they
3: belong to.
0: Today's episode was produced by Arun George, Jairaj Singh and Joshua Thomas. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TOI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at Podcasts at timesinternet.in.